I'm I'm hearing from Greg and Ezekiel that you can hear me, though I'm not sure if I'm able to hear you. But as long as you give me your attention and nod every now and then, I think that will be that'll be fine, and they'll work on that as we move forward. But good morning and welcome to Sunday School. We're continuing on in our study of the Scripture, and we are right now in the life of Abraham. Now, last time we saw God formally enter into a unilateral covenant with Abraham. When we say unilateral, we mean one-sided. Though Abram's belief in God was counted to him as righteousness, we saw that significant verse, Genesis 15:6. God also strengthened Abram's faith by a ceremony, by a covenant ceremony. And in this ceremony, though it was customary for two people to walk between the animals, the cut animals, to signify, hey, either one of those breaks this covenant, let this happen to us, it was God alone who passed through the animals, indicating that God alone would be responsible for bringing the terms of the covenant to pass, even the amazing promises given to Abram and to Abram's seed. These blessings to Abram and to his seed, they would not be determined by Abram's obedience, his ritual observance, or his simple effort. Ironically, however, after this faith-affirming covenant was inaugurated, Formally, we saw how Abram and Sarai compromised in order to bring about God's promises themselves. Just when God affirmed that he alone would accomplish his word, Abram and Sarai convinced themselves that they needed to help God by transgressing God's marriage design and giving Hagar to Abram as a second wife. So what they did was wrong and contrary to God's design, and it only resulted in household strife. God dealt patiently and compassionately with Abram and Sarai and Hagar. And we observed last time that God is similarly patient with us. Though, considering that we have the scriptures, we ought to learn from the example of Abram and learn that we must not sin. We need not and must not sin in order to bring about God's good promises to us. But today we're going to finally see God's promise of a chosen seed come to pass, or at least the beginning step of that promise. Today's lesson is about the birth of Isaac. Now, why is this section of scripture so significant? Well, first, we will see God vindicate his faithfulness and his wisdom by gloriously providing the son of promise at the right time, at the perfect time. But second, we're also going to see the truth of the covenant ceremony of Genesis 15 reemphasized. That is, God's blessing are according to his gracious promise, not according to works or ritual or even physical descent. Here's our outline for today's lesson. We're going to be looking at how God changes Abram's name and gives Abram the sign of circumcision in Genesis 17. Then we'll look at the birth of Isaac and the dismissal of Hagar and Ishmael in Genesis 21. And as we look at each one of these passages, we'll be considering application for our lives today as well. Now let's pray as we continue. Lord, our gracious God, our, our Father in heaven, thank you for these accounts. These are written for our encouragement and our instruction. I pray that you'd help me to be able to explain it clearly, and I pray that you'd give the people good attention and uh, full alertness so that they can benefit from your scriptures. And Lord, the Spirit, I pray that you would be pleased to work among your people this morning. Bless them, convict them, encourage them. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Okay, please open your Bibles to Genesis 17. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's just page 15 in your Pew Bible. We're starting in Genesis 17. And this is right after where we left off last time. Last time we saw Abram indeed obtained a child from his own body through Hagar. That child, Ishmael, his name means God hears. Now, for Abram and for Sarai, they must have been thinking, surely this is the son of promise. This is the heir for which we've been waiting so long. And intriguingly, as we noted last time, God did not rebuke Abram and Sarai for their action. At least it's not recorded in the scriptures. In fact, there is no appearance of God or word from God recorded in the Bible to Abram for the next 13 years. Now, it's possible that God did speak to Abram. We don't know about it, but poignantly, the Bible records no revelation from God to Abram for the next 13 years. So were Abram and Sarai thinking all that time that Ishmael was really the child of promise? There's a good chance. And imagine how Abram and Sarai were building their lives around that, planning their future around Ishmael. But after this long gap, God again appears to Abram. And Abram is going to learn some extremely surprising news and also receive an extremely surprising command from God. Let's now read Genesis 17, and we'll do this in sections. We're going to read all the way down to verse 22 or so. But let's start just with verse 1 to 8. Follow along as I read. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, he was 86 in Genesis 16. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord, that is Yahweh, appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you. I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face. And God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations, for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. All right, let's pause here for a second. Just observe a few things. Notice how old Abraham, Abram is now? He's 99. So like I said, 13 years since the birth of Ishmael. Here again, we see God affirming his covenant promises and blessings to Abram. But notice there are a few elements that are new that are highlighted here. Notice that God says in verses 4, 5, and 6 that Abram will be a father of a multitude of nations, or it can be translated a multitude of peoples. That's a, little, that's a little different from what we've heard before. Also, verse 6 says that God, God will cause kings to come forth from Abram. And because of these facts, God decides that Abram ought to undergo a name change. No longer Abram, which means exalted father, but Abraham, which means father of a multitude. Again, the context multitude of nations come from you. Now you're going to be called father of a multitude. 
But God has some other changes in mind in accordance with this covenant that he's established with Abraham. Now let's read on and see what those changes are. Verses 9 to 14 now. God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout your generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. And it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants, a servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Hmm. Let's pause here again and observe. God calls on Abraham here to adopt circumcision. That is the cutting away of the flesh of the foreskin of all males. This will be how Abraham will keep covenant with God. Notice, though, that God also identifies the purpose of circumcision. What is the purpose? According to verse 11, God says, it shall be the sign of of the covenant. Notice that the penalty of neglecting this sign is severe. Verse 14 says, what is the penalty? The person who is not circumcised will be cut off from the people. And we can see that phrase used elsewhere in the Old Testament to mean that person will be put to death. So pretty serious. Now at this point, Abram's name has been changed. He has a new physical sign of God's covenant which he is to keep. But wait, there's more. Let's now read verses 15 to 22, and we'll observe those as well. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of 12 princes and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. When you finish talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Now, notice here in this last bit, God changes Sarai's name as well as Abram's. He says Sarai will be called Sarah. Now, the differences between these two names is pretty subtle. Sarai means my princess, while Sarah just means princess or woman of rank. 
Now, at first glance, that might sound like a downgrade. Wait, her name just became more generic. How How is that appropriate? I think it's along the following line of reasoning. I read an explanation along these lines. Sarai is no longer to be just her father's princess. You can imagine her father, when Sarah was, Sarah was born, said, oh, this is my princess, and he calls her Sarah. Is no longer merely to be her father's princess, or even Abraham's princess, but she is to be the princess, indeed princess of the whole world. Because notice the explanation in verse 16. God's explanation emphasizes her regal position. Nations will come from her. She has promised a son with Abraham, and from this son, nations and kings will come. So a name change is appropriate. Now, verse 17 reveals a curious reaction from Abraham. At the thought of Sarah bearing children, what does Abraham do? He laughs and he asks himself, is this really to be? Then Abraham makes a suggestion before God. And notice his suggestion. He says, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. That is to say, why don't you make Ishmael the son of promise and blessing? We know that this is the sense of Abraham's statement because notice how God responds. He says, no. He responds with a no. And he says, I will bless Ishmael. I will make a great nation of him. Even 12 princes will come from him for your sake, Abraham. And by the way, we see this fulfilled in Genesis 25. But God makes clear that Ishmael will not be the son of promise or the inheritor of the special covenant of Abraham. Instead, God promises that in one year, Abraham will have a child through Sarah, and they are to call the child's name Isaac. What does Isaac mean? He laughs. Isaac means he laughs. Furthermore, oh, never mind, I already said that. God declares that Isaac, not Ishmael, will inherit the Abrahamic covenant from God. Now, we're not going to read verses 23 to 27, but just know there that part of the passage describes how Abraham obeys God, and he has himself and all the males in his household circumcised. And that would include Ishmael. Ishmael was also circumcised. Right, with these observations, let's consider interpretation now. Always our three steps in the inductive Bible study method. First question, why does Abraham laugh? Is it from joy and amazement? Or is it from unbelief? This is actually kind of a hard question to answer. On the one hand, God does not rebuke Abraham for what Abraham says in his heart, which we might have expected if Abraham was dishonoring God in doubt. God could have called him out on it. Furthermore, when Abraham laughs, it says he fell on his face. That's an expression of worship, even of gratefulness. Why would he do that if he didn't believe what God said? On the other hand, what Abram thinks and his laughter, it sounds very similar to what we see in Genesis 18 from Sarah. When the angel of Yahweh visits Abraham along with the other two angels on their way to Sodom, and he repeats this promise of a child being born within one year. Genesis 18.12 says... Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, 
being old also. And then listen to how the angel of Yahweh responds in the next two verses, Genesis 8, 18, verses 13 to 14. And Yahweh said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, seeing, saying, shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for Yahweh? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. So Sarah gets an indirect rebuke for her laughter. So why didn't Abraham deserve one? He seems to be doing the exact same thing that she did. And if Abraham really believed God's promise and was grateful for it, why does he immediately suggest that Ishmael be the heir and, and the inheritor? So you can understand that interpreters of this passage go in different directions as to what Abraham's laughter means. Can't be too dogmatic about it. I'm inclined to think that his laughter is also of disbelief to some level. And perhaps the reason that Sarah is rebuked and Abraham isn't is because, well, when Sarah laughs, she's already heard from her husband, most likely, from Genesis 17, that God has made this promise. So she ought to have progressed in her faith. But no, she's still laughing by the time the, April, the angel of Yahweh comes in Genesis 18. Still, whatever unbelief, whatever slowness to accept God's promise that Abraham and Sarah are displaying, they do eventually progress. They do come to believe and expect that God will keep his promise because Hebrews 11, 11 is able to say, Hebrews 11, 11, by faith, even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful who had promised. Now we might think as some later Jews did that circumcision was the prerequisite for Abraham to receive God's covenant or for him to be counted righteous before God. But how does the chronology of Genesis refute this idea? Actually, what do you think? So see if you can answer that question. That's right. That's right. That's right. And we mentioned those things last week. God had already given the covenant promises to Abraham, and he was said to be counted righteous in Genesis 15 before circumcision, which is what the New Testament writers also point out. Circumcision was not a requirement for blessing or for salvation. It was a sign of it. It was a testimony, a reminder of God's special covenant with Abraham and with Abraham's seed. So the chronology argues against circumcision as a prerequisite. Now, though, we might still ask, why circumcision? I mean, all the things God could have chosen to be the sign of the covenant, why did he choose circumcision? I mean, isn't circumcision a little grotesque? Well, there is no explanation in the Bible as to why God chose this specific sign for a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. But we can observe different aspects of God's covenant with Abraham and circumcision. It shows that these, this is an appropriate sign. Just briefly mentioning, one, circumcision is certainly very intimate, which appropriately reflects the serious and personal nature of God's covenant promises. Second, circumcision represents a cutting away at the most intimate level 
a concept that the scripture will come back to again and again in pointing to man's need for a radical change on the inside, even a circumcision of the heart. Man needs a cutting away at his most fundamental level. Circumcision would point to this. Third, circumcision would certainly have set apart the descendants of Abraham from most, if not all, of their pagan neighbors. As we try and uncover the practices and beliefs of the ancient world, I think I've heard that there are other peoples that also circumcised, but not exactly in the same way that God called Abraham to do so. Certainly most did not, even if, if, if some did to some extent. And this would separate the descendants of Abraham, the Hebrews, the Israelites, the Jews, from the other peoples of the earth. And this is part of many aspects of what God would call the people of Israel to do as a separate and special people. They were to be his kingdom of priests, intercessors for the world, attracting people, drawing people to Yahweh. Circumcision was going to be one of the ways that they were going to be set apart. Even in Jesus's day, that was still true. You know, it's interesting, just learning a little bit about the history of that time, but there are many Jews in Jesus's day who wanted to become more like the Greeks. And the Greeks, they uh, they had their gymnasiums where, where people would do athletic events and they were naked. And this was a great embarrassment to the Jews because the Jewish males, if they were going to participate in this, they'd have to reveal that they were circumcised. And that would just bring the scorn of the Greeks. This was going to be a way that God was going to separate his people. And fourth, just another observation, circumcision is obviously connected to the promise of seed because it is reflected on the male seed-bearing capacity. And isn't that one of the central aspects of God's covenant with Abraham? Thus, through circumcision, God is acknowledged as the one who will grant descendants, who will bring about the seed. And he's the one who will bring about the promises to that seed. So for a number of reasons, and perhaps more than what I've even mentioned, Circumcision was an appropriate picture of different spiritual truths related to Abraham and to Abraham's seed. We must note, however, that there is nothing magical or righteous about cutting away a part of the human body, even the foreskin. And so, as a, as a consequence, we should ask, is circumcision required today? The answer is, not at all. Why is that? Well, certainly the New Testament makes it quite clear that circumcision is not required. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. And Galatians and other places also emphasize this truth. Being physically circumcised, being physically uncircumcised makes no difference now. Because as a sign, remember, that's what circumcision's purpose was. As a sign, circumcision fulfilled its purpose, along with many of the other Old Testament pictures and signs. How was it fulfilled? In Christ. Because the ultimate seed, our Lord himself was circumcised, and he brings all of those who are in him into the true circumcision. If you want to be part of the true circumcision, those who are truly set apart to God, true inheritors even of Abrahamic blessing, then you need the circumcision of the heart, not the skin. And that's only accomplished by the spirit in Christ. In fact, the Bible repeatedly warns against adding circumcision as a requirement for followers of Christ. 
And many Jews in the early church were insisting on this. They say, hey, you want to be a follower of Jesus, you need to be circumcised. And you need to keep other aspects of the law. But the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 3.3, Philippians 3.3, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So Paul makes it pretty clear. Physical circumcision doesn't make you truly part of God. The Jews who insist on that, they reveal themselves to be the false circumcision. They're mere mutilators. But we are the true circumcision, Jew and Gentile, through Christ. Sadly, today, there are still groups calling themselves Christians who insist and teach that followers of Christ must be circumcised, keep dietary laws, and follow other Old Testament rituals. But we've already seen, we've already pointed out that righteousness came by faith apart from circumcision. Circumcision was only a sign and a picture of what would ultimately be fulfilled in Christ. Now, there are other aspects of this passage I'd like to make comments on, but I think it'll be more useful to do so once we look at our next passage. So let's now move to Genesis chapter 21. Genesis 21. Just to inform you again about what passes between these two passages. Genesis 18 and 19, you may remember, because this is the account of the angels visiting Abraham and Sarah as God is on his way to assess and judge Sodom and the other wicked cities of the valley. In Genesis 20, which we didn't look at yet, Abraham sojourns in the southern land of Gerar, and while he's there, what do you know, he gets into a situation where he fears the king of the place, a king named Abimelech, and he thinks that Abimelech will kill Abraham over Sarah, who is still beautiful, even at age 90. And so Abraham says, oh, this beautiful woman, she's my sister. And Sarah goes along with that. And what happens? Well, like before in Egypt, the king takes Sarah as wife. But God intervenes. God protects Sarah. And he curses this king and the king's whole household until Sarah is given back to Abraham. This the king does, along with many gifts, as a testimony to Sarah's being untouched, unviolated by the king. Abraham and Sarah go on their way, along with great possessions and all their people. And this brings us to Genesis 21. So let's now, we won't do this one in sections, we'll read it all together, verse 1 down to verse 21. Then Yahweh took note of Sarah, as he had said, and Yahweh did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? And I have borne him a son in his old age. The child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. 
Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking. Therefore she said to Abraham, drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. But God said to Abraham, do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. For through Isaac, your descendant shall be named. And of the son of the maid, I will make a nation also, because he is your descendant. So Abraham rose early in the morning, and took bread and a skin of water, and gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder, and gave her the boy and sent her away. She departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was used up, she left the boy under one of the bushes, and she went and sat down opposite him, about a bow shot away, for she said, Do not let me see the boy die. And she sat opposite him and lifted up her voice and wept. God heard the lad crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter with you, Hagar? Do not fear, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him by the hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. God was with the lad, and he grew. And he lived in the wilderness and became an archer. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. All right, let's start again with observations. So the promised day has finally come. A son has been born to Abraham and Sarah. And how old are the parents at this time? Verse 5 says, Abraham is 100. So Sarah is about 90. Now, do you know any couples who have their first child at such an age? Now, it's true. The lifespans were slightly longer at that time. But both Abraham and Sarah admit they are old. And yet they've had a child. This is extraordinary. And consider how long they've waited for this child. Abraham and Sarah, they were already childless when they left Haran when Abram was 75. And that's when God gave Abram the promises and called Abram to Canaan. We don't know how long they were married before that, but surely they had been hoping a child for many days before they left Haran. Just for illustration's sake, let's say Abram and Sarah got married when Abram was 30 and Sarah was 20. That would mean by the time Isaac was born, that Sarah has been barren for 70 years. Decades of waiting for a child. No doubt the couple had renewed hope in having children after God called Abram and gave him the promises. But it was still 25 years to wait. Consider all the hurdles that almost prevented the birth of this child. Twice, Sarah was taken as wife by another man. And then there was the giving of Hagar to Abraham. That could have closed off Sarah forever in terms of having children. Why go to Sarah? You've got Hagar. You've got Ishmael. But God's plan would not be thwarted. Through all of those years, God was working. God was protecting, God was providing, and God was remaining patient with this couple. And at the appointed time, as verse 2 says, 
a child of promise was born. Actually, notice the repetition of phrases in verses 1 and 2. We see phrases like, as he had said, as he had promised, at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. This wasn't so. This wasn't any accident. It's not like God was wiping the sweat off his brow and saying, "Phew, glad we got that to work out." No, it was all according to God's sovereign will. Notice the child is named Isaac in accordance with God's command, but the significance of that name has changed. He laughs, Isaac. The name he laughs. It originally was a reference to the amazement, even disbelief, of Abraham and Sarah, but now. What is the significance of that name? Look at verses 6 and 7. Sarah says, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh. So the scoffing unbelief, what has it been turned to? Grateful celebration and amazement. Notice Abraham circumcises Isaac on the eighth day in accordance with the command given to Isaac as part of the covenant in Genesis 17. And then verses 7 to 8 say that Sarah nurses Isaac herself. This went on for some time. Abraham puts on a great feast on the day of Isaac's weaning, the day when Isaac was going to stop nursing. This would have been about two or three years later. Women in ancient days, they often nursed longer than mothers today do in America, even up to three years old. So this day of feasting and celebration, this would have been about two or three years later, and it's at this occasion that conflict renews again between the wives. And why? Notice verse 9, Sarah sees the son of Hagar, Ishmael, mocking. Now the word for mocking has the same root in Hebrew as the name Isaac. Both have to do with laughter. So this 15, 16-year-old Ishmael, he's laughing at the feast and not in a good way. So what does Sarah call for in response? Verse 10, drive out the maid and her son. And notice the reason she says, for the son of the maid will not be an heir with my son Isaac. Now, this might sound a little harsh, right? Ooh, Sarah, it's kind of cranky. Well, let's remember how easily polygamy provokes jealousy and anger between wives and between the sons of wives. We're going to see this happen a number of more significant times in the Old Testament. Polygamy always being, brings jealousy and strife. You can see that when you go against God's design, you just create problems for yourselves. But Sarah, besides maybe understanding why she might be upset or jealous, Sarah does also have a point. Doesn't keeping Hagar and Ishmael around confuse the inheritance and confuse the promises of God? Now, there's something interesting here, though, that we should note. According to the custom of that time, who would have the right of inheritance and first blessing in a family? Would it not be the firstborn? Even in the law of Moses, this is true. In fact, Deuteronomy 21, verses 15 to 17, it makes reference to, basically, the same situation that Abraham is dealing with. When there's a man who has two wives, Deuteronomy 21, 15 to 17 says, the man cannot make the son of a loved wife who was born later, firstborn in place of a son of an unloved, unloved wife who was born earlier. 
According to the law of Moses, the true firstborn must always receive the firstborn inheritance. So, according to custom of the day, then, and according to the later law of Moses, who should be Abraham's heir? It would be Ishmael. But God said, it won't be Ishmael. It'll be Isaac. And Sarah is now making a demand that Ishmael be given the boot. And it's not as if Abraham has no love for Ishmael. I mean, just a few years ago, Abraham was pleading with God, why don't you make Ishmael the son of promise? I understand that Abraham, as the true father of Ishmael, had a love for this boy. He was basically a young man at this point. So he's distressed, as verse 12 says. And so God speaks to Abraham. And what is it that God says? Abraham, go rebuke Sarah for being petty and unkind. No, that's not what God says. God says, don't be distressed, Abraham. Listen to what Sarah is saying. Why? And verse 12 says, for through Isaac, your descendants or your seed shall be named. God says, I'll bless and multiply Ishmael also because he's your descendant. But it's going to be Isaac who's the inheritor. And we can already see God's special blessing and protection on Ishmael in verses 15 to 21. We won't talk about that specifically, but in the wilderness, God provides for them and he brings them blessing. So with God's approval, Abraham sends his son Ishmael and his wife Hagar away with only basic provisions. And that's it. No inheritance from Abraham to Hagar or Ishmael. Everything will go to Isaac. All right, with these observations, let's turn again to some interpretation questions. Is there a natural explanation for the birth of Isaac? Is this all a fortunate, amazing coincidence? No, clearly not. This was a miracle. It was an impossible outcome without God's direct intervention. People at this level of old age, they just don't have children. And this is why Abraham and Sarah laughed. It was impossible, except that God intervened because God was going to keep his promise. But along with that, we might ask this question. Why did God make Sarah and Abraham wait so long for Isaac? I mean, God is the powerful sovereign. He has all things under his control. But he specifically ordained that Abraham and Sarah would be childless until this specific moment which meant that they would have to endure years of pain and sorrow and waiting and longing and hoping. Why? I mean, God, couldn't you just spare them all that trouble? Couldn't you just, out of the goodness of your heart, God, provided the child that they wanted? Why'd you make them wait so long? Or we could generalize the question. Why would a good, all-knowing, all-powerful God make any of his people wait to receive what is good? This question forces us again to confront the transcendence of God. How the God who is thinks, desires, and acts on a level far above our own. Why does God make his people wait? Not in spite of his goodness, but because of his goodness. 
Because God is wise, because he is good, because he is glorious, he makes his people wait. Psalm 84.11 says, For Yahweh God is a sun and shield. Yahweh gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. How can that be? It, didn't he obviously withhold something good from Abraham and Sarah? No, because what is the greatest good for man? Is the greatest good getting everything a person wants in life? Experiencing physical comfort? Receiving relief from painful circumstances? Jesus says he came to bring abundant life in John 10.10. 10. But what is the essence of that life? You've heard me quote this before. It's a verse that's been on my mind a lot recently, but John 17.3. John 17.3 says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's eternal life. Thus, Jesus is also able to pray in John 17, 24. John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now, brothers and sisters, we must grasp the following truth if we want a steadfast faith. The greatest good we can have in life and in eternity is to see, to know, and to enjoy our glorious God. I'll say that again. The greatest good we can have in life and in all eternity is to see, to know, and to enjoy our glorious God. That's what Jesus was saying. Paul says the same thing. And how do we do that? One in life, seeing and knowing God, seeing his glory, it often comes by God bringing us into hard circumstances. God will even put us into what seem like impossible situations where we are tempted to compromise or despair. And then, when it seems that there is no hope left except that which is in God, that's when God steps in to powerfully rescue and vindicate. In this way, God grows us in our faith and he causes us to know him more. And he leads us to treasure him above all things. Even the blessings of the earth. There are good things on the earth. But the greatest good is God. So this is what God was doing with Abraham and Sarah. He made them wait, not because he wanted to deprive them of good, but because he wanted to give them ultimate good. And he wasn't just looking out for them, but he was looking out for us too, who thousands or many years later are looking at their lives. Because we too are to learn to wait on our faithful God who at the perfect time will provide exactly what is right and exactly what is good for us. Until then, we are to wait in faith and in obedience. Now, I think I saw a hand um, when I was explaining that. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, 
Yeah, thanks for mentioning that. So Romans 4, other places in the New Testament talking about how God was growing Abraham in faith. He was accomplishing great good for Abraham. And it's the same thing for us. That's actually where I want to go, where I want to go next. Ask yourself, has God put you into such a situation in your life where you are waiting for something good? Are you waiting for deliverance from temptation or difficulty? Are you waiting for vindication as you suffer persecution? I know these times are hard. If you're not in such a situation right now, well, you will be. Because this is what it, this is what it means to live in this fallen world and as a child of God. Even Abraham, as much as he has grown in faith up to this point at the birth of Isaac, he's not done growing in faith or displaying God's glory, as we'll see next week. But he was learning that he could trust God, and so can you. You can trust God even in the difficulty. You can trust his wisdom. You can trust his love. You can trust his power. He knows your needs, and he is zealous to do you good. He knows your suffering. He knows your pain. He's not callous towards you. He's very sympathetic. He has a tender heart towards you. But his love will not settle for giving you something less than the best. God is not an indulgent father. He is a good father. Like Hebrew says, sometimes we undergo the discipline of God. Not because we've actually done anything wrong, but because he wants to bring about a greater good for us. And no discipline at the time seems pleasant. But once we've been trained by it, the author of Hebrews says, we get that, that good reward. That's what God is doing with us. So as you enter into those situations where you're, when you've just got to wait, continue in faith, continue in obedience. At the perfect time, God will provide for you because you are his precious child. He himself is to be your shield while you wait. Isn't that what God said to Abraham? And we heard it repeated in the psalm. Look to God for your life, not to the passing things of the world. God wants your eyes fixed on him. For in so doing, you'll have true satisfaction and sustenance. Now, one other question I want to ask is, how is it right that God instructed Abraham to cast out Hagar and Ishmael? This kind of seems unloving and even unfair. I mean, Ishmael is technically Abraham's firstborn. How can this be right? Well, truly, this dismissal was a hardship at some level to Hagar and Ishmael. Nevertheless, God proved faithful to provide for them and to bless Hagar and her son. And again, we see that at the, the bottom part of the passage. They were not truly abandoned. But as to whether this is unfair... We have to be careful not to misinterpret it. Rather, what's being put on display in this passage is the nature of God's blessings to Abraham. Do the blessings of Abraham come as what is due to all the physical descendants of Abraham? Or do the blessings come as a gracious gift to those whom God has chosen in Abraham's descent? Brethren, it's the latter case. Though Ishmael was the firstborn and he was circumcised, God passed over Ishmael in inheritance. 
because God had chosen that his promises would go to Isaac instead. This theme of God's choice rather than man's due by descent or by merit, it is going to keep on appearing in Genesis. In fact, it already has. Why did God choose Abraham? Nothing mentioned in the scriptures as to why he merited it or inherited it. God simply was gracious to him. Why does God choose Isaac over Ishmael? Why does God choose Jacob over Esau? Why does God choose Joseph for prominence above all his brothers when Joseph is the youngest before Benjamin is born? Why do these things keep on happening? Because God wants to show that blessing, even salvation blessing, it comes by grace and not by works or by descent. We see this in a negative way, too, in the Torah, in the books of Moses. The people of Israel that are rejected by God, an entire generation destroyed in the wilderness, they were ethnic descendants of Abraham. Yet God says, they will not inherit my blessing. And isn't that the same thing that John the Baptist said in Jesus' day? Don't tell me you're sons of Abraham, because God can raise up sons of Abraham from stones. Paul also, in Romans 9, verses 6 to 8, he says this. Romans 9, 6 to 8. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants shall be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise who are regarded as descendants. Ah, this is, this is the concept we need to see. It's about promise. It's about grace. It's not about what is due. That's why God is able to have Ishmael and Hagar dismissed. What we're seeing, really, in Genesis 21 and throughout Genesis and the rest of the Torah is God's sovereign election on display. What Romans will say, what Romans will quote, God has mercy on whom he wills to have mercy. He has the right to do that. Now, what are some implications of this truth, especially for us today? Consider this also application-wise. God's gracious choice means that no one should trust in works or lineage for salvation. Just because your parents are Christians or just because you go to church doesn't mean that you truly belong to God. You have to ask yourself, does my heart really belong to God? Have I truly repented? Am I a true follower? I can't rely on my descent or my works. It's my heart his. Another implication, God's gracious choice means that those without spiritual pedigree or some great record of works, they should never despair. Gentiles can be saved just as much as the Jews. Notorious sinners can be saved just as much as the self-righteous and hypocritical. Because it's not about merit or what is due. It's about God's gracious choice. God's gracious choice also means that God deserves great glory and praise. I mean, consider yourself. Why should you be an Isaac and not an Ishmael? Why should you be placed into the tree of Abrahamic blessing when others are not? There's no reason except that God chose to be gracious to you. Therefore, how should you live? If you haven't yet trusted in God, 
You ought to do that. He's given an invitation to you. He says, come. You too can be an inherit of Abrahamic blessing. He says, if you will deny yourself, take up your cross, follow Jesus Christ, you will see the blessing. But if you're already in Christ, you should live a life of thankfulness. You should live a life of trust and obedience because look at how gracious God has been to you. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 4.1. Walk worthy of that great salvation calling you've received from God. You see, God's grace to Abraham and to Isaac, to Sarah, it was written for our instruction. Therefore, may we learn from their experience to worship, to trust, and obey. And this is what God's Spirit wills for us to do. Questions about what you've heard today? Uh, yeah, uh, Steve, just make sure, uh, sound, sound guys, just make sure you turn the mic back on. Yeah, I can hear you now. Right. Yeah. Before you go on to your other comments, let me just recap what you're saying. Yeah, that's true. It's worth reemphasizing. It's not as if Abraham and Sarah were going to have this child without continuing to have intercourse with one another. No, that was the means by which God was going to bring it about. The point I'm just trying to emphasize is that naturally this would not happen at such an old age. This was miraculous on some level. Anyways, keep going, Steve. That's, a, that's another good point, Steve. I, I didn't think about that specifically. We do have a problem if we say that circumcision is necessary for blessing or salvation because it's only given to males. Would it seem to make uh, females somehow less spiritual inheritors? But you're right, Steve, as we go to that passage in Galatians, there's neither male or female, female in Christ. It doesn't mean that there aren't role distinctions, but it means in the level of receiving salvation blessing and standing before God, they are totally equal. They are full inheritors just as much as men are. 
which would show us again, circumcision could not be a prerequisite. So that's a good point. Other questions or comments? Yeah, Roy. Hmm. That's a good question, Roy. Is there significance that circumcision would also, at some level, require blood as a covenant? It's interesting, it's not mentioned in the passage, so I don't know if I would make too much of that. Certainly, covenants were often associated with blood because of the seriousness of it. Now, when we saw the covenant God inaugurated with Abraham, it was the blood of uh, death. Let me be cut asunder, just like these animals were, if I don't. Um, if I don't keep the covenant. The author of Hebrews will also make a connection between covenants being inaugurated with blood. Even the Mosaic covenant, the author of Hebrews will say, was not without blood in its inauguration because Moses sprinkles blood on the people when he, when he gives them the terms of the covenant. So I'd have to think about that a little bit more. Again, no blood, it's not, there's no attention drawn to blood in the passage ordaining circumcision, but it is true that Hebrews does talk about covenants being inaugurated with blood. I'd have to think about that more. But interesting observation. All right, I think that's all the time we have for questions today. If you have any others, definitely please email me. As I send out the Sunday School previews each week, you should have my email so you can just reply back to that. But that's it for now. This certainly sounds like a good place for, and they lived happily ever after. I mean, faith is vindicated, the child is born. What more do we need to hear? Well, this is just the first step, or rather the next step in God's great plan of redemption. It's not as if all the problems of Abraham have come to pass. Moreover, God is not done growing and displaying Abraham's faith. Because next time, we're going to see Abraham put to the ultimate test when God commands Abraham to sacrifice the son of promise. We'll talk about that next time. Let's close in prayer. So we thank you for your scriptures, God. We're instructed in, in a number of different ways, and we have a number of different ways that we can consider application, God, when it comes to waiting on you, trusting in you, but also seeing, God, that it is all by grace. We have nothing to bring to you, God, to say, this is why I should be saved, in terms of from ourselves. You know, the only reason that we can have salvation is because of Jesus Christ and because of his gift of salvation to those to whom you have shown grace. We thank you that you've shown grace to us, for those of us who know you, the Lord God. I pray that you bring more people to yourself, even at Calvary today. And through those who are attending Calvary or who are here this Sunday school, God, use us as your instruments so that we can display the aroma of grace, that we can spread that aroma, and that Lord, people would be saved. Lord, you give yourself great glory in that because you are worthy of it. I pray, God, that we'd be fixed on your glory and sustained by it, even as we wait for various things in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you all. I'll see you next time. You're welcome. You're welcome.